0: It is so good to see you all here today. It is Memorial Day weekend, and so I hope that you have some time to at least, you know, reflect a little bit on what this weekend means. Uh, So many, many thousands have lost their lives defending our freedom, and uh, so this is a poignant time. Yes, we get a day off, and uh, yes, we are probably having some barbecues and getting our family together. We are, for sure. Um, But uh, don't forget to take some time and uh, really remember the families that have lost, loved ones, and the the sacrifice it takes to uh, defend and keep our freedom. Uh, It's also a heavy weekend, not just in America, uh, because of the shooting on on Tuesday, Uh, but it's heavy for the entire world. I mean, the entire world, as a result of Tuesday's shooting, uh, poured out grief and condolences uh, toward our country. And so, as we are wrapping up this Focus series, I thought, you know, we just can't load the next in the series. We've got to pause a little bit, and we've got to reflect. And um, uh, we're not going to do sort of a normal sermon time. This is, I have a lot of notes here. In fact, I have way too many notes. I have 14 pages of notes. I can only get through seven, so I don't know <laughs> what we're going to do about this. Uh, we're going to keep the screen behind me black. Um, other than one uh, slide at the end, we're going we're to take a good hard look at. Uh, but this is a significant um, a weekend, and it's a, it's a significant time in the United States of America. And so I think we're going to appropriately wrestle with this. Um, the content's going to be a little bit on the heavier and serious side. Um, we're not going to get too detailed or graphic. For those of you who are kind of nervous, are, are we going to get into politics? Let me be very, very clear, crystal clear. Rancho Church never aligns with a political party. Never, ever. So you don't need to worry about that. Um, we're going to you know, dance around some of the, the issues that, are, are, that we're facing as a country in a very real way, in a very sober way. But we're going to look to Jesus, Right? we look to jesus jesus is our rudder we look to his life we look to his teaching we look to his priority and we say okay jesus by by your resurrection power and by the spirit that you gave your church what do we need to learn what do we need to learn in times like this where we're thinking through deeply what is wrong here and how can can we your church be an influence because jesus made it very clear that that his priority through us is to bring the kingdom of heaven here. That's the whole mission of the resurrected Jesus. He sends us the Spirit, and he says, bring the kingdom of heaven here, right here and right now. So when we have the last 12, 11 or 12 days where we have the Buffalo shooting and we have um, the shooting All Day, and, and we are thinking to ourselves at the deepest core of who we are, heaven is not here yet. In the long arc of history, things are getting better but we are staring in the face of something deeply, deeply broken. And so just in the last two weeks, there have been four very public mass shootings. There have been more that we haven't heard about. But four very public mass shootings in two weeks. One of them where 10 innocent people were gunned down in a grocery store just because they were black in America. 21 lives taken in an elementary school in America, and this is not unusual, that's, that's the tragic part, it's not unusual, and there could be a tendency to get numb to this, and you've heard all this stuff, right, I, I'll, I'm going to rant a little bit here, and I apologize for that, I think we all just need that, that cathartic sort of experience of just getting some stuff out, and really wrestling through some things, so the things I'm going to say here at the beginning are probably things you've heard and talked about, but this has to stop. This has to stop and we have to get to a point where we're not numb to a constant barrage of mass shootings in America. And and listen, I am a a proud American. I am a flag-waving, patriotic uh, American. I love this country. We are free and we are brave and we are innovative, right? We have contributed so much good to this world. We have been, I would even say, largely responsible for reducing poverty in the world, feeding the world, largely responsible for defending freedoms in this world. I am a proud American, but there is something deeply, deeply wrong with us. Deeply wrong with us. For perspective here, there have been 216 mass shootings in America in 2022 216. We are 150 days into 2022, and we've had 216 mass shootings, 27 in schools, 692 mass shootings last year, 2021, 610 mass shootings the year before 2020. And this is a uniquely American tragedy. If you're not aware, and you probably are by now, this is only in America. Now, there are other countries with problems and other countries with violence and other countries with, you know, gang issues and drug issues and political issues. But this issue of mass shootings, chronic mass shootings, is uniquely American. Now, I'm going to just make a statement here, and I just want you to sit with this statement. In 2022, firearm-related injuries became the leading cause of death among children in America. In 2022, firearm-related incidents became the leading cause of death among children in America, surpassing automobile accidents in 2022 and 2020. Just sit with that. How is it possible that the leading cause of death among children in any country, let alone the United States of America, is firearms? And so here we go again, and what will Uvalde do in terms of shaping American policy and American reactions? Probably nothing. And I'm just being completely honest with you, it sounds very cynical, but what will this Uvalde shooting mean in the United States of America? Probably nothing. If I were to bet... In a week, the news cycle will slow down. 21 funerals will get passing attention. And I guarantee in a week, we'll start griping about the price of gas again. That's just what we do. Now, I it may not sound like it, but I am a fierce optimist. <laughs> I really am. I am like clinging on to fierce optimism. It's not gonna sound like in the first 60% of this message, but I am clinging on to fierce optimism. And this is because of my faith in God, my faith in the power of God, my faith in Jesus Christ, the resurrected Christ who sent his spirit to mobilize his church, to make the world more like heaven. I am not losing hope to that vision. And as I look at the long arc of history, and whenever I talk about the long arc of history, it means something's going wrong right now, just so you're aware. The long arc of history is getting better, and the kingdom of heaven is advancing on earth, right? And, there's, and I talk about that a lot. I preach on that a lot. It's the biblical hope I have. But this is a tough couple of weeks and a brutal week. But despite the fact that I'm, I'm very optimistic about the long arc of history and the long arc of God's work through His church, there's something deeply wrong with American culture and we've got to call it out. Our culture is broken broken. And, and I've, I've heard people, okay, this is a COVID stress issue, right? We've, we've had COVID. We've had a couple of years of COVID. This is COVID stress just coming out in these ways. And, and, but the reality is the entire world has had COVID stress, and they're not dealing with this. We could blame it on political div- division, and I would be apt to blame some of this on political division in America. But then I've traveled around the world, and there's political division, fierce political division everywhere in the world. So it's not Something we can just say, well, that's the cause. We can blame it on the rise of mental illness, and that is very popular. It's the rise of mental illness that's the problem. Well, there's a rise of mental illness in younger generations all over the world. None of these excuses are uniquely American, but mass shootings are uniquely American. And this is personal for me, as many of you know, my daughter was in the middle of the worst mass shooting in American history. So every time this comes up, I go back to October 1st of 2017, when my daughter was running for her life with 61 people dying around her, and 411 others shot. My daughter was there and her husband. So this is deeply personal. And I'm telling you, I'm really containing myself here. There's a, a, a deep lament we have gotta go through as Americans and stare some things in the face, right? Lamentations 3:15 through 18 says this, and I think this is just the heart of God and it should be our heart for our country. I am filled with bitterness, with a bitter cup of sorrow to drink. I chew on gravel, I roll in dust, peace has been stripped away, and I've forgotten what prosperity is. I cry out, my splendor is gone, everything I'd hoped for is lost. We need this kind of a moment in America that just stops saying, oh yeah, it's one more, it's one more, it's one more, move on, move on, move on. We just cannot keep tolerating this. And I'm also you know, taking this very personally, because as I think you know, we have a pretty large private school here, preschool through high school, and we've got 1,100 students we have to protect every single day here, and their parents, and our staff. And if I were to read to you some of the emails I received this week of parents who are just crying out for what's happening in our country, and some of them afraid to drop their kids off at schools, this cannot be. Six years ago, we decided to hire an armed security staff, too here, every single day. I mean, that was a very tough and controversial decision six years ago. Nobody was doing that. And, and here we are, thing. well, thank God, and we're going to keep doing that and keep adding security and keep adding hard defenses. And wh- why should we have to do that at schools in the United States of America? And we always kind of think about, well, what can we do? And I'm telling you, there's a lot that we've tried that just doesn't work. We can't just say, oh, it's a one-off circumstance. Let's just move on. Or it's a one deranged guy, and nothing could have stopped that and move on. Uh, as you know and have heard, I'm very grateful for, for the, the things I'm reading and hearing in our culture, that cliches and platitudes that pour out of our mouths don't even work they never have and they're annoying. All these cliches and platitudes, the thoughts and prayers don't work. Politics as usual doesn't work. Focus on mental health doesn't work. Turning schools into fortresses doesn't work. Arming the population doesn't work. Impassioned sermons like this one don't work. Nothing works. And so when nothing works, we have to come to this conclusion as a people, that our very culture is broken. The American culture is broken. We are deeply broken people and it is time to admit it. In the Old Testament, there were times that the Hebrew culture was deemed to be broken and God spoke. God spoke hard truths to his people, the people of Israel, when they were broken, when they were being, you know, trapped by their internal strife and violence. And here's one of the things of many that God spoke to Israel in Ezekiel 7. O people of Israel, the day of your destruction is dawning. The time has come, the day of trouble is near. Shouts of anguish will be heard on the mountain, not shouts of joy. Their violence has grown into a rod that will beat them for their wickedness. God is serious about what happens when a country is sinking into violence. Now listen, I am not a doomsdayer. I am not an end times doomsdayer, but when I heard the screams of the parents on Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday of this week, it reminded me of Ezekiel chapter seven. Shouts of anguish will be heard in their land and not shouts of joy. Now, I'm not a a sociologist, so I can't analyze all of what makes the American culture broken. I can point out to a few things, and I'm skipping this. I won't even bother with it. But there are a few things that have made up American culture that has created a broken culture. And part of it is our political discourse. Part of it is just the hateful, vitriolic speech towards one another because we're Republicans or Democrats that borderlines militant speech against each other. And political parties are very happy to terrify people in their base to get money and to get votes and to call each other names. Both parties in America call each other enemies and dangerous and extremists and radicals and must be stopped and we must take our country back. What does that say? It says, we are creating enemies of one another. Americans are creating enemies of each other because we have a different political party. Our culture is broken, in part because of American politics, but our culture is broken in part because of American religion. Religion is part of the problem in America. Religion is what, you know, fueled America to take this nation. It is religion that fueled America to capture and enslave human beings, it is religion that actually fueled segregation in America. And we can say, well, those are, that's history, right? That's American history. And yes, religion has been used in every culture nearly to fuel terrible things, right? And in America, that is absolutely true. I mean, read your history. American religion has fueled terrible, terrible things. Now, I'll also say on the other side, that religion that wakes up and realizes that, wow, religion is causing so much harm right now, as you're using the Bible to enslave people, as you're using the Bible to segregate people, as you're using the Bible to invade other lands and other people, there are religious movements and awakenings and reformations that come up and says, enough is enough, we're gonna stop this, and in the name of God, particularly in the name of Jesus Christ, we're gonna stop this, and we're gonna replace war with peace, and we're gonna replace hate with love, and we're gonna see Jesus exalted here. And I am very, very hopeful, and this is where my optimism sort of kicks in, I'm very hopeful that there is right now, and has been happening for several years, a bubbling up of a true Jesus-centered religion in America. I hope to be a part of that, I hope to help lead that here, and by by I, I mean us, Rancho, to help lead a truly Jesus-centered movement that says anything that's not aligned with Jesus, any speech or action not aligned with Jesus is not the heart of God. And so we're gonna obsess on Jesus, his life, his priorities, his ministry, his teaching, and we're gonna do that, and we're gonna say that, right? And maybe there can be enough people like us and like our church and others who are wrestling, not that anybody's perfect or have arrived, but at least thinking something has to be done differently in America, particularly in American religion. Because there is always a dance between religion and culture, and there's arguments beyond anything I'm qualified to talk about, but does religion fuel culture? Does culture fuel religion? And it's probably yes. It's this intertwining of what's most of the time a giant mess, and that is true of America. Religion and culture in America is a mess, an absolute mess, probably doing more harm than good. Here's a few reasons why. And I just am asking you to think through this. There is prevalent teaching that God is violent. There's prevalent teaching in churches that God is violent. And we often point to the Old Testament as the blueprint for all people in all times, believing that God empowers the good guys, right, the faithful, the correct ones, right, you know, us, to destroy the enemies to achieve a God-honoring win. You read the Old Testament, and that's what it looks like and feels like, and that was Israel, and that was, you know, 3,000 years ago, and there's a whole rationale for that, a whole theology around that. But if you take that and move it forward, which a lot of people do, it's like God is the God of the good guys. God is the God of the correct ones. God is the God who will bring defeat of the enemies and exalt the victors. And a lot of people believe that. And a lot of people are thinking, yes, that God will defeat the enemy, and the enemy will die that's not an exaggeration. It's a belief that is core in much of Christianity that God will violently destroy the enemy and we will win. There's prevalent teaching that God is violent. And yet, what does the Scripture say? 1 John four sixteen. God is what? Love. There's prevalent teaching that the world will end in violence. And this is a common teaching, particularly in the last 50 years in the American church. And a lot of people believe to their core that this world is gonna end with violence. There's this end times belief out there that has been prevalent for five decades. Some of you have been raised with that thinking, I certainly was, that Christians are taken off the planet, the faithful few are taken off the planet to peace, then God's judgment will literally slaughter everyone else with judgments including consumed with fire, poison, disease, war, and famine. That's common American theology that God is going to destroy this world with fire, poison, disease, war, and and famine. I prefer 1 Timothy 4.10. Our hope is in the living God who is the Savior of all people. Maybe God isn't in the business of delivering the correctly believing Christians and condemning everyone else to slaughter. I don't believe God is a violent God, but many of us do. There's a prevalent teaching that there will be eternal violence. Two days ago, I'm on the freeway from here to Marietta. On the Rancho California overpass is a sign about this big that says, Jesus or hell. I thought, you've got to be kidding me. Here we are, you know, experiencing incredible violence, and you are putting a poster threatening violence eternal violence, Jesus or hell. And that kind of thing is still out there on signs and sermons and protests and doctrinal statements. And I thought to myself, during a week of incredible violence, I don't think I have seen a greater threat of violence than a sign on a freeway that says, Jesus or hell. If you don't believe what you're supposed to believe about Jesus, you're going to be violently tortured forever and ever, without end, throughout all eternity. That's a common theology. That's violent. So I don't think it's a coincidence that when the church adopted this theology of hell 400 years after Jesus, just so we're clear, the church adopted this theology of hell 400 years after Jesus, it's no coincidence that that's the very time the church started fueling war. Read your history. You start adopting a theology that God is violent now you are amped for violence now you have divine justification for violence and that's underlying everything it's underlying american religion it's underlying american culture it's underlying american politics so the christian religion has endorsed violence in one way or another for 1600 years in the name of jesus it happened three months ago as the russian orthodox church disgustingly blessed putin's war in ukraine the christian Russian Orthodox Church blessed Putin's war in Ukraine. This is a godly, righteous war. And we condemn that. And we condemn every time in 1600 years. We assume God is violent. We assume God wants to uh, you know, condemn the, the unrighteous and condemn the wrong, and he's gonna use armies and bloodshed to do it. Humor me for just a few minutes here. You might think to yourself, well, you know, Jesus taught about hell. If you know your Bible, you might even think about a couple of times Jesus talked about hell, Sermon on the mountain and two other times. Jesus uses the word Gehenna. So this is gonna be a little, little theology here and just kind of hang on with me here. Jesus uses the word Gehenna. In 1611, King James translated the word Gehenna as hell. And there's a whole reason why they did that and it's a mess. Jesus used the word Gehenna. Gehenna is a physical place. You can go to it right now. You are 17 hours away from hell. You want to know how to get there? You go to LAX. You go from LAX to Jerusalem, and you take a one-hour walk, and you're in hell. It's the Valley of Gehenna, the Valley of Hinnom. That's the word Jesus used. He didn't use the word hell. He used the word Gehenna. It's a valley. It's the formal name of a valley. Now, he told specifically religious people, you really do a lot to get people to that valley of Gehenna or the valley of Hanam. You do a lot to get people there. In fact, he says in in Matthew 23, 15, as he's screaming at the religious institution, he's saying, what sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, you are hypocrites. For you cross land and sea to make one convert, and then you turn that person into twice the child of Gehenna, weirdly translated hell in 1611, but you're making sons of Gehenna. You're making sons of this valley outside of Jerusalem. That's what Jesus says. Religious institution, you're making sons of this valley outside of Jerusalem called Gehenna or Hinnom. Now this place was exceedingly violent. 3,000 years ago, the valley of Hinnom was exceedingly violent. The god of of Molech was there. The god of Molech, the statue of the god of Molech. I'm gonna be very brief forgive this sentence. They would put their babies on the um, idol of Molech and burn them alive. I'm done talking about that. That's what they would do in the valley of Gehenna, the valley of Hanam. And God says, you must never do that. You have to stop 2 Kings 23:10. God will defile the Valley of Hinnom so that no one would make a son or daughter pass through fire as an offering to Molech. God was saying, this has to stop. You cannot sacrifice your children in the Valley of Gehenna. You cannot sacrifice your children in the Valley of Hinnom. It must stop, and it finally stopped in 700 BC. That's what Jesus was talking about. You may not harm children. You may not sacrifice children. So when Jesus said to these religious leaders, you've got to stop making sons of the Valley of Hinnom, he was saying a whole lot, and we don't know anything about it because we don't know our biblical history and translations have been all messed up. You must stop hurting children, and children suffer the most in violent wars, and children suffer suffer the most in homes where they have no voice and no power. Children suffer the most in isolation when they've lost hope. Children suffer the most when they are raised by social media algorithms. Children suffer the most in mass shootings that happen just about every day in America. Children suffer the most when corrupt religion uses their protective status to hurt children. And there are times, just time and time again, religious institutions, massive religious institutions, have systemically abused children and have hid that just a couple of weeks ago. Another denomination came out with a 256-page report. I read 205 pages of it. 205 pages of a 260-page report from the Southern Baptist Convention that just listed the names of sexual predators that harm children among their churches and how long they stayed in those churches. And there are other denominations that have done the exact same thing. Jesus is screaming at the religious institution In Matthew 23, you must stop hurting children. You have to stop no more. And we look at these tragedies in America, and it is the children who are harmed the most. Number one cause of death in American children is gunfire. So what do we do about it? I'm going to ask for just a couple things to think about. I'm gonna ask you that if you have been raised in a theology that believes God is violent, and God will win, and we will win because we are right, and he will destroy those who are wrong, he will destroy those who didn't get it right, he will destroy the world by fire in the end, Uh, he will destroy people for eternity in torment. If you've been raised with that kind of thinking, I'm gonna ask you to, to consider Believing something else. Consider believing something else. And I know that freaks us out. <laughs> I mean, freaks us out. We like to consider ourselves a thoughtful church, meaning, you don't have to believe everything I say. Well, oh, you're the pastor, you're the anointed. I am no anointed. I have a pastor title, but I'm just doing my best here to try to teach the Bible. That's all. I'm not anointed anything. At the end of this sermon, you can say, I agreed with those two things, and I disagreed with those 200, and perfectly fine, right? You can go out to lunch and talk about it. We want to be very thoughtful, and as a thoughtful people, it doesn't mean we just have to blindly accept everything we've been taught. We don't have to blindly accept everything we've been taught. You can actually use your brain, and you can think, you know, I've got a Bible, and I've got a, I've got a mind, and I can wrestle through some things, and I can talk to other people, and I can read some different things, Right? Believe something different. Here's what I'm gonna ask you to believe. And it's really simple. We try to keep things really simple. Here's what I'm gonna ask you to believe. If you would believe simply that Jesus is the full expression of God, just start there, that Jesus is the full expression of God. I uh, talked to a a buddy of mine um, uh, Friday, and he's going through a bit of a faith crisis. And uh, he belongs to a different faith tradition, and he's going through a real crisis right now. And he knows I'm a pastor, and we talked about it, and and I said, hey, listen, can we just start with kind of a basic foundation, Just, just one thing to believe? Could you believe that just maybe Jesus is the best expression of God that there has ever been? Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and he's read that a million times. He was raised in a religious tradition. Is there one thing in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John where you would look at the life of Jesus, the priorities of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, and say, well, that was lame, he started laughing, like, no. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, Jesus is love and grace and accepting and helping people in need and, and he's, he's comforting people who are grieving and he's befriending people who are lonely and those who are labeled sinners by the religious elite, he welcomes them, accepts them and forgives them and lifts them up and says, let's do better and this is Jesus, feeding the hungry, right? clothing the naked, giving people a second chance and a fifth chance. I mean, this is Jesus expressing the love and grace of God to this world. We follow him. He's the greatest expression of God. I believe in God, and I believe God expressed himself through Jesus. Can we start there? And can, and can we say, all right, we have, we have our Bibles, right? We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And can we just obsess on, on these books? Can we obsess on, on this and start here? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we just learn to love Jesus and follow Jesus and listen to Jesus, teach what he taught, do what he did, and then once we have a a true understanding and foundation in Jesus Christ, Jesus first, Jesus-centered, we can start reading the Old Testament and know how to read it. We can start reading the New Testament and know how to read it, but let's take these Gospels and put Jesus-center. And if you're interested more in this kind of discussion, We're gonna have what's called Summer Seminary. It starts the last Thursday of of June. If you want to know more about this from a deep theological perspective, join me. I don't know if it's gonna be me and four people. I'd have no idea, but we're doing Summer Seminary. It's every Thursday starting June, I think 30th, and we're just going to dive into this and dive into this whole paradigm of theology, what it means to put Jesus first, and then we know how to read the scripture and we know how to think about God you can believe something different. And let me free you from a couple of things. Your youth pastor didn't have all the right answers about God. Yet most people believe everything their youth pastor taught them until they die. That's just a true statement. Because in our formative years, you know, we're, we're very open to religious teaching, and our youth pastor is teaching us all kinds of stuff, and Sunday school teachers, and they're great people, great men and women, but they're just people. A lot of them, very new to the… Fa- I mean, I started youth pastoring, I'm not kidding you, when I was 17 years old. It's like, I have no joke gone back to some of my early, you know, victims <laughs> and said, I have taught you some really terrible things. I taught you some bad things. I taught you God was violent. I taught you there's winners and losers and the losers are consumed by fire. I taught you terrible things. Yet, people I know who were raised in my youth group still believe this stuff, I know it, I know their names. They are sometimes the people who are at my heels every once in a while just harassing me for this or that. They were in my youth group, I I helped make them that way. Your parents didn't have all the right answers about God, and it's so hard to deviate from the faith of your parents. I get it, it's so hard. Your pastor with opinions doesn't have all the right answers about God. I'm a pastor with opinions, that's all I am. I'm a pastor with opinions. I try to get it right, I try to really look into God's word, Jesus first. I read and I read and I read, and I wrestle and wrestle and wrestle, and our team's here. If you were in a Tuesday staff meeting, we might start taping these things. It is a lot of fun, but I'm telling you, when we say we're a diverse community of friends, I mean, we are as diverse as it gets in terms of our thinking about God, our perspectives about God, our theological backgrounds. There's no two of us on our ministry team that came from even remotely the same background. We are a diverse community of friends, which means we're wrestling and wrestling and wrestling, and none of us claim we have it right. We have all the answers. They feel free to disagree with me, you feel free to disagree with me. We wanna be a thoughtful church. Believe something different, maybe believe that God is not a perpetrator of violence. He's a God of love and peace and grace. I'm gonna ask you to claim Isaiah 60, 18 as God's vision for America, and we're gonna put this on the screen. Isaiah 16, 18, I am just clinging on to this as God's vision for America. Um, If we could put that on the slide, I would be greatly, there we go, thank you guys. Violence, will disappear from your land. As I read this, would you just pray this with me? Violence will disappear from your land. The desolation and destruction of war will end. Salvation will surround you like city walls, and praise will be on the lips of all who enter there. Doesn't that sound like just a wonderful, hopeful prayer for America? and for the church, violence will disappear from your land, the desolation and destruction of war will end, salvation will surround you like city walls, and praise will be on the lips of all who enter there. How can we make that happen? In a culture that is broken, with politics that are broken, and religion that is broken, what can we do to help make this a reality in America? Here's what I think I know. I think I know politics is not gonna save us, pretty sure about that. I think I know religious institutions are not gonna save us, I'm pretty sure about that. Here's where my hope lies and here's where my optimism is energized. I am so passionately believing that God's grace and God's love by the resurrected spirit of Christ in you is gonna bring the change we need. You are going to be the change we need. You are going to walk, I pray, through a process that gets you maybe thinking differently about who God is. You are going to walk through a a process and a journey that is going to make you think that you're a part of this country and this country is broken and this country needs you to make some kind of a difference, particularly in the young people around us, right? I have hope in us. I honestly, and this might sound a little whatever, but I am honestly so proud of this church and what we do for children in particular. We feed hungry children in this region through our farm and through community mission of hope. We open our doors on Sundays and Wednesdays and Thursdays to welcome and care for and love hundreds and hundreds of children every week. Every one of them has got to be live scanned. We have Department of Justice live scanned, I think, 40% of the city (laughs) because You wanna work with children around here, you're gonna have to go through a process. Rancho has a thrive ministry every single Sunday for children with special needs, welcoming them in. Rancho leads the summer camps for children with special needs. Rancho leads the prom for children with special needs. Rancho has a large private school, not just for the super elite and rich, but welcoming people to Jesus in a safe environment. Rancho owns and operates housing for single mothers and their babies to ensure they do not live in their cars or live in strangers' houses. Ranchos helped launch a school for orphan children in Embu, Kenya. Rancho launched a medical mission plus one Palawano which has saved hundreds of lives of children in the Palawano tribe of the Philippines. This is just a short list. We are passionate about children and youth loving them, caring for them, protecting every single one of these precious children who Jesus says, let them come to me. And by the way, Jesus also says, you mess with them and it's gonna be like a millstone wrapped around your neck and tossed into the depth of the sea. God says, I'm serious about children. I'm serious about their safety. I'm serious about them being loved. I'm serious about them being cared for. And we followers of Jesus ought to be at the forefront of protecting kids. And yet, denomination after denomination has protected child predators. How dare they do that? It stops with us. We can commit and work for the safety and peace of your kids and others' kids. And we'll close here with just a little bit of of an encouragement, and we're gonna close in a, a prayer in the form of a song, and it's gonna be a powerful time for us to close in that way, but peace for children and safety for children begins in in the home. And in a crowd this size live and online, it very well is likely that some of you might need to admit right now that your home is not very safe or peaceful for people, for children. You might need to admit in your own heart that my home could be safer for kids, my home could be more peaceful for the kids who live in it. And you need to make some changes right now in your own home the things that are said, and the volume of your voice, and how you might lay hands on children. That stops, that stops. Work for the safety and peace of children in your own home. Work for the safety and peace for children and extend this to others. Think of other kids in some way as your own. Perhaps make your home a place of peace for other kids. Perhaps keep an eye out for kids who might be struggling. And I'm telling you, if an adult comes up to a kid in a, in a trusting environment and, and you say to a child, hey, are you okay? And you see a look in their eyes. I'm telling you, kids communicate so much. I've been in, in youth ministry for 40 years. The eyes of kids say so much. And to be able to notice that, whether they're yours or others, and just say, hey, bud, are you okay? And you might really make their day, and you might really make a difference in their lives. Perhaps get actively involved in matters of public policy that could create a safer community and a safer country for kids, and I'll let you decide what that would be. Perhaps join a team that has a positive impact on kids, and might I jealously ask you to consider being a part of our children's and youth ministry. We have have upwards of 2,000 kids on this campus every week with hundreds of volunteers who love these kids, protect these kids, care for these kids, and and try to be as Jesus to these kids, you can get on one of those teams. And I'm telling you, there is no greater joy or privilege in life than being a part of a team that impacts children for the good. Just consider that. I was a struggling kid. I came from a dysfunctional home. I was insecure. I had a horrible self-esteem. 40 years ago, I walked into Rancho Community Church. 40 years ago, I walked into Rancho Community Church and there was a group of adults there who welcomed me, got to know my name, they cared for me, they played with me, they opened their homes, they went on camps, we went on trips, saved me, and introduced me to Jesus. They were Jesus to me. One in particular, I don't even know why I remember him, Mike Boris. I think I remember him because he really didn't do much. He wasn't a pastor, wasn't a particularly great speaker. He was a simple farmer in town, but he just wanted to do some good for some young people, so he just kept showing up. Every day he showed up, he showed up, he showed up. He opened his house, we had pool parties out there, he just showed up. Got to know my name, every once in a while asked me how I was doing I remember him from 40 years ago. He never taught a Bible study. He never preached a sermon. He never led a small group, but he was there for kids. And he was there for me. Could you do something not only to create a safe environment for the kids in your home and in your watch, but is there something you can do to create a safe and loving and welcoming environment for children who aren't yours, but you treat them like they are? This world and this generation needs that.